0: Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Was
1: this collision itself an accident on Russia's behalf? And is the U.S. responding as such?
2: Um, so, you know, we are uh, continuing to assess exactly what happened, but I think uh, based on the actions of the Russian pilots, it's clear that it was unsafe, unprofessional. Um, and I think the actions speak for themselves Um, what we what we saw again were were fighter aircraft dumping fuel in front of this uh, UAV uh, and then getting so close to the aircraft that it actually damaged the propeller on the MQ-9 we we assess that it likely caused some damage to the Russian aircraft as well Um, to our knowledge well we know that the aircraft uh, the Russian aircraft did land. I'm not going to go into where they landed um, but again it's just demonstrative of uh, very unprofessional unsafe airmanship on the part of these pilots. The MQ-9
0: Reaper that's the drone the unmanned aerial vehicle capable of being remotely controlled or autonomous flight operations utilized by the US Air Force and it was the drone that was hit purposefully by a Russian Su-27 and downed in the Black Sea. And as the reports are right now, they're looking for it because they're trying to get to it before the Russians or the Chinese do because the Russians and the Chinese don't actually develop things They steal other people's technology. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, it's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY. Would love to take the call today. I'm in the mood. I'm in a place. 833-468-8669-833-GOT-TONY. The Black Sea, if you've never looked at a map, um, you, you should. Maps are extremely helpful. Getting an understanding of what it is you're dealing with. So this was a drone that was operating basically off the coast of Crimea, off the coast of Ukraine. And these areas that are now fully in Russian control and Georgia to the south is Turkey. And then on the west side, you have Romania and Bulgaria. So this is what we call uh, in the business a bit of a hotbed. That's where we're at. You absolutely had the Russians hit this thing purposefully, according to reports, dumping fuel on it at the first, and then knocking it down. The Russians, of course, are like, what are you looking at us for? We don't know. We don't even know what you're talking about. Never happened. The Russians, all, and they're Russians, they're, and they're commies, and all commies are liars. Vladimir Putin is a commie. Just like Xi Jinping is a commie. All communists lie all the time. It is rule number one of being a communist. Rule number one of being a communist is you don't talk about Fight Club. And if you say, wait, are you talking about Fight Club? You're like, I've never talked about Fight Club. Why are you lying? And they'll be like, no, 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 you're lying. And you'll be like, no, 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 you're lying. And then it gets confusing because that's the first rule of being a communist. Always lie sun is shining today no it's not always 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 lie so it doesn't matter what they said in this conversation it only matters what we're saying so they purposefully knocked this thing down now you're in a race to try and get to it john kirby national security uh council uh coordinator for strategic communication telling uh, CNN that the military has already moved to, quote, protect our equities. And they didn't want anybody else getting their hands on the drone. Which is weird for an administration that left many billion dollars worth of hardware in Afghanistan and didn't care who got access to it. Blackhawks in the hands of the Chinese that they are taking apart bit by bit, piece by piece, to figure out how the technology works so they can go about building it. Remember, they don't create. They don't have any capacity to create. They're communists. They're dopey people. What they have the ability to do is destroy, and they have the ability to steal. Does this put us at a war footing with Russia? Is the purpose of this to try and engage the United States. No, I don't believe that the purpose of this is to try and engage the United States. Rather, this is in a long line of provocations from the Russian military. The provocation is much more about seeing US reaction than it is the idea of wanting a US reaction. And if there were to be a stronger US reaction, that is the price you pay for the provocation. That's what we're dealing with. That's super annoying, you understand. It is super duper annoying. You've got uh, the, the uh, Russians bringing subs close to the United States coast. You've got them trying to go over U.S. airspace in Alaska. Uh, you've got them uh, trying to interfere with signals, planes. This is, this is what they do. What I found interesting about the response that you heard from the Pentagon uh, spokesperson patrick ryder is is his name uh is is the is the the man responding here i'm not, i'm not forgive me i'm not sure of his of his rank so i i apologize um he talks about the actions being not only unsafe but let me play this for you again was this collision itself an
1: accident on russia's behalf and is the U.S. responding as such?
2: Um, So, you know, we are uh, continuing to assess exactly what happened, but I think uh, based on the actions of the Russian pilots, it's clear that it was unsafe, unprofessional, Um, and I think the actions speak for themselves. It's this idea of unprofessional. That
0: has really connected to me. In that he says it a couple of times in this 60-second answer, the idea of unprofessional it was an unprofessional thing to do. We're talking about Vladimir Putin. The last thing in the world he is is a professional. We all agree with this. So why is it so important? I'm sorry when I didn't know his rank Brigadier General Pat Ryder my mistake I apologize sir it's fascinating to hear him say unprofessional what's the point of saying that we've watched these buffoons in Ukraine they don't know what they're doing now it's clear that Vladimir Putin is willing to waste every life in order to keep Ukraine at bay and eventually win and take over Ukraine I mean that's very very obvious but unprofessional I think there's a terminology there that means something underneath. The State Department is very, very specific regarding terminologies that they utilize with other nations. So for example, some nations are listed as friends some nations listed as ally um we talk about a long-standing relationship our deep commitment those kinds of terminologies don't just get written onto a piece of paper and then read they are actually um what is the word that the way you're you, they're, they're focus grouped they're checked they're decided on between the parties in question between the nations in question to describe each other and the relationship to each other it's crazy it it is it is it's kind of fascinating so when i hear the word unprofessional if I were to hear it once, I could argue that it's glib or flip. When I hear it two or three times, there's purpose. And I'm really curious where this is directed to. When when Brigadier General Ryan states, a writer, sorry, Brigadier General Ryder states that this is unprofessional. Is he trying to insult Vladimir Putin? Is he sending a message to... Allies, about you? Do you, do you see what kind of freak you're dealing with? Senator Jack Reed is a Democrat from Rhode Island. And Jack Reed referred to this. He's chair, chairman in the Senate of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and referred to it as reckless, and inept, inept, unprofessional. Is this about connection to allies about, look at what we're dealing with, or is this meant as a bit of terminology to create unrest in Putin world? To create the, the, the situation by which the oligarchs to have billions and billions and billions of dollars on the line, say, you know what? Maybe we don't need Ukraine. Maybe we don't need this battle. Look, the Americans aren't going to take our money. They just want him gone. Somebody else will be in. We buy this one off. We buy that one off. You know, 85% of something is better than nothing. Now, my caviar is getting cold or warm. I don't know. I don't know how these people eat their caviar. And uh, if we can make a decision, maybe, maybe, maybe Vladdy Vlad needs to go. By the way, for the record, I never liked him. Unless you like him. In that case, I love him. Just please don't kill me in my sleep. So... That's that's where I find myself at a at a bit of a a bit of a crossroads because I feel like a message is being sent and I'm not sure to whom. The other question is Why would the Russians do it? Well, the Russians are in the business of poking. This is what they do. This is what they do. Well, what if this wasn't actually intentional? Follow me. What if they were doing what they do as they do it, poking here, poking there, poke the Americans here, poke the Americans. Ooh, it's fun. hee. And someone got too close. And being inept and being unprofessional, they... Banged into it. It goes down. They dump the fuel on it. All the things that got done in the order in which it got done. And it was a mistake. And the Russians know it was a mistake. The Russians showed themselves to be inept. Not just on the land, but in the air. They showed themselves to be unprofessional. They didn't know how to leave it alone. Maybe this actually says more about the Russian military than we think. That's a question I don't have an answer to. But it's so fascinating that you take this one, really, really in the scheme of things, small bit of activity, small movement, and holy cow, is there a lot of possible read Now we got to find out which read it is. Oh, no! What's the plan from the United States? Well, the plan from the United States is to get back the MQ-9 and shoot anybody who tries to take it. This could get dangerous. We will keep our eyes on it. I'm Tony Katz. So I'm scheduled on Newsmax later today where the conversation... It was about Hunter Biden and, well, his dealings. Exactly how much money has he made from either those sources in Ukraine or, or, or uh, China? The House Republicans have gained access to his banking records from the Treasury Department. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything, tonykatz.locals.com. Over there at Fox, uh, Geraldo Rivera tweeting out, Hunter Biden has been investigated for almost five years. Aside from fact he's been a junky dirtbag, nothing remotely criminal has been uncovered. Put up or shut up. Oh, Geraldo, you are delightful. Now, It would be clear to me that I only have to discuss the fact uh, that Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden, illegally filled out the Form 4473 when purchasing a firearm that it was indeed him lying on the form that you utilize when you purchase a firearm, that's form 4473, right? And when it asks, have you ever been a user of drugs and he said no he lied. Question 21E Are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? Warning it reads The use of possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law, regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized for medicinal or recreational purposes in the state where you reside. The question is a yes or no. Are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? And Hunter Biden checked no. Now, Hunter Biden should be in jail for that alone. Because you, you non related to the president jokester, you jokester? How old am I? You would be in jail. You would be in jail for lying on a federal form. You see, people like Hunter Biden is why we have so many crimes involving firearms, because people lie. So it doesn't matter how many laws you create, when people lie, well, what are you going to do? As Molly Hemingway pointed out, setting aside the gun crimes, prostitution crimes, drug crimes, tax crimes, bribery receipts, foreign agent shenanigans, money laundering, paper play, and kid glove treatment from the corrupt and politicized FBI and DOJ, this really is an astute observation. You have to be willing to suspend disbelief or really suspend rational thought in order to think that Geraldo Rivera is making any sense at all. The idea that he's been investigated for almost five years. First, I I, I must say, I don't believe that to be true. They may have had a file But I don't know if I could say that there's been an actual investigation. Can you? Secondly, if they were to argue at the Justice Department or the FBI that there's been an actual investigation, how would you believe them? The politicized FBI and the politicized DOJ, how would you believe them? I think in these conversations that we're seeing, like for example, the House Republicans getting access to Hunter Biden's banking records, to see what level of dollars was taken in from what sources if the allegation is you were acting on beh- uh, 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 with the Chinese at the behest of a financial relationship for your father, you know, the big guy and his 10%. By the way, if you're the big guy, can't you get 12%? I mean, you're the big guy. If if producer Ryan makes a deal, uh, and, uh, I'm in for twelve percent. Ryan, I just want you to know right now, you make a deal, I'm in for twelve percent. And, and and by the way, you're welcome. I mean, it's like the vig. It's it. What? Well, you you you're not gonna give you're not gonna give Tony what he what he's owed. Oh, I oh, won't be seeing you no more. Let the investigations happen, but on that just one matter, of course, Hunter Biden's a criminal. Peralta knows better. I'm Tony Katz.
1: You have more than two hundred fifty thousand in any institution; you're basically a hedge fund, or a savvy investor, or a business. You understand your risks and you act accordingly. So I I think the Fed's mandate about keeping FDIC insurance at 250 makes sense to me. But we changed all that over the week, and we said, it doesn't matter how much you have. And I understand we want to keep confidence in the banking system. What I would have preferred is to allow this bank run by idiots, and I'm sorry to say these harsh words, but it's a fact. This is a, these, the, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank is the poster boy for idiot management now. That-
0: I mean, the reviews of Silicon Valley Bank's top tier have not been kind, considering they sold a little over $4 million worth of their own stock in the couple weeks before the collapse. But when Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful as he likes to call himself, the jury is still out, is referring to the fact that you can't bail out everyone including himself, he who had money at Silicon Valley Bank, you can't bail out everyone. And what kind of message does that that send? And what kind of message are we sending to the entire banking community and all of us when we see that Credit Suisse is under tremendous pressure. Now this deals in more institutional world, but you've seen the market down over 600 points today because of it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. EJ Antony joins us right now. Research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. EJ, uh, I'm glad you had the chance to be uh, with us. Real EJ Anthony on the Twitter box. Um. I want to get into this Credit Suisse problem, but first let's go back to the the words there uh, of Kevin and this idea that A, the bank was run by idiots, and B, look at what the government has done when they've said we're going to basically, my words, bail out everybody and make the statement that we will cover all deposits insured and uninsured. We've now created a world where nobody loses money. Doesn't that cause us a problem? Oh, absolutely. We, we have privatized gains, but we are
1: now socializing losses. And, you know, the, the dirty little secret here is that everyone who had money at SVB, as as uh, Kevin O'Leary said, they knew the risks. And you can, by the way, buy private insurance for any deposits over the 250 FDIC limit, and those people chose not to do it. This is the equivalent of me getting uh, uh, choosing not to get flood insurance for my home, and then when the flood comes and destroys the structure, I want the taxpayer to bail me out. It's
0: ridiculous. But it happened. Now, the, some people have asked, and and I would argue it's cynical, except it's interesting. If this had happened at a regional bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma— Would we have seen the federal government move in this way? The fact that it happened to Silicon Valley Bank with people who are huge donors, with a class of people connected to huge donors, people look at this and say, oh, sure, you're helping out yourselves and each other with our dollars. Is that cynical case a rational case or would the feds moved regardless of where the location of Silicon Valley Bank was?
1: Oh, no, I have a very sneaky suspicion that if this bank were in East Palestine, it never even would have made the news, and they certainly wouldn't be bailing it out. The fact of the matter is you you had a bunch of wealthy political donors at this bank who spent the entire weekend lobbying for a taxpayer bailout, and they spent much of the weekend – like look at Mark Cuban uh, on, on Twitter. He basically spent the entire weekend trying to get people – uh uh, riled up and saying look there's going to be bank runs everywhere oh my gosh we're all going to be murdered in our beds this week if if we don't have a complete bailout of all the depositors at this bank and they made up all these excuses about how companies aren't going to be make be able to make payroll and blah 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 none of which was true it was all exaggerated but it worked and it got the bailout they wanted
0: Talking to E.J. Antoni, Research Fellow for Regional Economics and the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. Real E.J. Antoni on Twitter. Now, we've actually never spoken before, although we do have mutual acquaintances, mutual friends within radio. Uh, economist Dr. Matt Will... Absolutely said the same thing about Mark Cuban. And I, the other day, made the exact same reference to the idea that if the bank was in East Palestine, Ohio, maybe we wouldn't see this level of interaction. But now that they've done this, and I, and I so I love that that you said that, now that they've done this, the question is, how does this change banking going forward? Or maybe more specifically, how does this change the mindset of the depositor? People like you and me going forward does this change levels of risk does this change for banks have their own personal policing of themselves because it's very obvious and you can dig into this that Silicon Valley Bank was not policing itself at all how does any of this change or does it change
1: you know the, the moral hazard that has just been created cannot be overstated that, that that's basically just a fancy way for for me to say that everyone now is encouraged to take ridiculous levels of risk. Why? Because there's more upside and there's no downside because guess what? Now who is going to pay for this bailout? It's going to be taxpayers. It's going to be the banks that actually uh, invested wisely and and did their due diligence with deposits. They have created uh, an incentive for insolvency and a penalty for prudence. And now everyone knows because the precedent has been set, Everyone knows that if I mess up, I get bailed
0: out. Let's move it over to this conversation about Credit Suisse, S-U-I-S-S-E. This is not a regional bank player. This is much more an institutional player. Credit Suisse is is a name you would say with pinkies out. And they have a 9.9% stake taken of them from, I think it's the Royal Bank of Saudi Arabia, the National Bank of Saudi Arabia. Uh, It's the Saudis, it's the Saudi royal family. They're telling the people at Credit Suisse, we can't give you any more money. We're locked out at 10%. These are the fault of the regulators. You're on your own with your problems. And this has got some markets rattled. So to the best of your ability, what is the issue going on at Credit Suisse? Why is it that this conversation about the Saudis has come into play so loudly, and where is the fallout here? In terms of how the heck did Credit Suisse
1: get here, I actually sounded the alarm on on them in particular back in October – because they were over-leveraged and had essentially no protection against interest rate risk. In other words, everyone knew interest rates had to go up eventually, and when they did, it was going to unravel the financial positions that this bank had, both in terms of where they got their deposits and also in terms of what they did with their deposits, in other words, where they were investing their money. And now what we're seeing is that the bank, unless it has a massive capital infusion, in other words, unless a ton of people or a very big institution like the European Central Bank is going to be willing to lend them a lot of cash very quickly, they're going to go under. And in terms of what what is the fallout from that going to be? I mean, it's going to be a lot of financial pain. But if we keep putting off the financial pain, if we keep kicking the can down the road, it is just going to make the next crisis that much worse. You know, I, I was so aggravated because earlier someone on CNBC was talking about how we're in the opening stages of a banking crisis. No, we're not. We're, we're in the middle, possibly towards the end. The opening stage of the banking crisis was when the Fed and every other central bank put rates way too low for way too long to finance trillions upon trillions of dollars in government spending that nobody could afford. And all that did was hide the problem until now. So just because the symptoms are appearing now doesn't mean that the crisis is beginning now. The crisis began three years ago.
0: Talking to E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. He is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis. It's an interesting um, look at it that this began three years ago because if that's the case, I think people like myself, on the outside looking in, if you will, not having, you know, uh, the the unbelievable dollars that that someone like maybe uh, Kevin O'Leary has would look at this and say, well, if this is the middle of it or near the end of it, well, this ain't so bad. Like, like, we didn't see hundreds of banks collapsing. We didn't see the Great Depression. Nobody was jumping in the main off of rooftops. So this is all uh, pretty easy. You agree or disagree with that statement?
1: Well, I I have to disagree because don't forget, if we're in the middle of it and it took us three years to get here, we got three more years to get out of it. Look at something like the financial collapse we had uh, that was from 2007 through 2009 and look at the Great Recession that followed. It took many, many years for things to actually recover and get back to some relative level of normalcy. And sadly, that's probably what we're going to have here. Now, again, what should happen is these institutions should be allowed to collapse Right? They should be liquidated. The people who invested wisely and, and protected their money should be allowed to buy up these assets. But that's probably not going to happen because what we just saw is that the Federal Reserve is willing to print money to bail people out. And as long as that continues, again, the more we kick the can down the road and the more inflation we're going to get in the process.
0: Now that, first of all, it very uh, well said, if it took three years to get to this moment, it's going to take three years to get out. The middle is, is a relative number. But you bring up the inflation conversation, and the inflation conversation is, is gigantic uh, to this. The spending, uh, inflation is when you have too much cash and not enough stuff. We certainly haven't solved a supply supply chain issue. Builders say there's more interest in housing, but they're afraid of what the banks are going to do. And there's been more of a push uh, for mortgages, even though the mortgage rates haven't necessarily come down to what people would have considered three years ago a normal number. This involves spending, but I don't think people understand how the money gets spent. So let's just take Silicon Valley Bank. Do we have yet a number of what is being spent by the federal government in keeping them solvent? And how does that play out in inflationary pressure?
1: Yeah, We unfortunately don't have a really good number for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is we're not sure if this bank is even going to be able to find any buyers who might be able to throw in some capital uh, to help alleviate this big liquidity crunch that we're seeing. In other words, they may may be in such horrible financial shape that no one is willing to touch it with a 10-foot pole, in which case it is all on the FDIC. It is all on the government, but the government doesn't have any money. It's our money, so it's all on the taxpayer. Here's the other really scary thing that no one is talking about for some reason. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, they don't just keep all of their money liquid. In other words, it's not just cash sitting in an account. They invest it. Where do they invest it? Medium and long-term treasuries, the exact same government securities that lost value and that helped cause the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. In other words, that bank was liquidating these treasuries at a loss and that caused or compounded their cash crunch. The FDIC is gonna go through the exact same thing, which means they don't have anywhere near enough cash to cover these depositors, which is probably why the Federal Reserve on a Sunday evening set up a $25 billion emergency fund to try to help cover all this. But guess what? The Fed doesn't have any money. It creates it out of nothing. And as it does that, It creates, as you rightly pointed out, too much money relative to the amount of of stuff in the economy. That's all inflationary pressure. This is all going to be borne by the taxpayer through a hidden tax of inflation.
0: E.J., before I, I, I let you go, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us, the question on everybody's mind is, is this the end? You talk about the idea of the middle. But that doesn't mean that every bank is going to go insolvent. That doesn't mean that every bank is run by, as Kevin O'Leary discussed, idiots. That's, that's not what what is true about all the banks. That said, is there a feeling that we're about to enter a new level of self-induced from the bank stress tests to see just how badly their leverage, whether it be on the bond side where interest rates went up, so therefore the value of the bonds went down, or other investments or what they're paying out to people, that they're going to have to start searching for cash. And exactly how many banks would it take to look questionable for everybody to freak out? <laughs>
1: Very, very good questions. You know, the bigger banks are actually extraordinarily well capitalized right now. They look like they're in the safest position. But the big wild card here that nobody can predict is the Federal Reserve because no one knows what the heck they're going to do. I mean, Jerome Powell is the same guy that got up there at a press conference and said a 75 basis point hike is off the table. And then he promptly gave us three in a row immediately after that. So no one has any idea what they're going to do at the next meeting later this month, let alone what their long-term strategy is. And frankly, I don't even think the Federal Reserve themselves have any idea what they're doing, which is how we got into this mess in the first place. So looking forward, we really don't have any way to predict what's going to happen with the banking sector.
0: you a ray of sunshine, EJ. Oh, I, I, wish I,
1: could, I wish I could give you better news, Tony. I really do.
0: E.J. Antoni, Research Fellow for Regional Economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. Find him on Twitter, Real E.J. Antony. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Every time it shows up in the news, I just smile. Oh, I love it, and I cannot wait for more of it to happen San Francisco considers reparations proposal to give $5 million per black person. Go ahead. As a matter of fact, I already thought that San Francisco had this done. I don't know what we're waiting for. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What is going on, everybody? The city's African American Reparations Advisory Committee, presenting the idea along with dozens of other recommendations from its draft reparations plan that was released back in December. So that's the one we talked about then. And, and they were gonna figure it here's the money and, and it, it, this is what it, it covers and this is how it makes people whole. The board of supervisors can now vote to adopt all of this or none of it or some of the committee's recommendations. It can even change them. This meeting was supposed to take place last month but it got postponed. There are an estimated 50,000 black people in San Francisco but it's not necessarily clear who would be eligible for the reparations. You have to be at least 18 and identified as black or African-American in public documents for at least 10 years. You see, they're denying you the chance to be your true, authentic self. Because you know as well as I do, everybody's going to say they identify as black in order to get the $5 million. And as a matter of fact, how can anybody say you can't really identify? If I identify now, I identify now. How dare you tell me I needed to identify 10 years ago? You also have to have lived... uh, in San Francisco during a certain period of time or descending from someone incarcerated for the police war on drugs, okay? Look, look, you're not gonna get me to argue any part of this. I want to see them do it. I want to see how they get it done. I want to see how they sell it to the people of San Francisco. It is My conversation with reparations is always the same. How are you going to sell it to future generations? Why is someone who is 17 on the day these reparations are given out, but 18 the next day, not eligible? All I want to do is watch these people tie themselves up into pretzels trying to figure out how to get this done and then realize that they can't. That's going to be fun to watch. This is Tony Katz Today.